Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. My name is Amber Kluwer and I've lived with type 1 diabetes for decades and enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living with this disease. Today's guest, Lisa Hepner, is the writer and director of The Human Trial, a groundbreaking documentary film that follows the lives of participants in this sixth ever embryonic stem cell trial in the world. I know those are big words, but we're literally talking about a cure and we get into the nitty gritty as to what that means. Lisa is a kindred soul who shares my passion to ask the hard hitting questions and the very reason this episode runs a little longer than usual. I promise you want to listen to the very end. But before we dive in, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit organization. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy. Just purchase a copy of Doing Diabetes Differently or click the donate link on my website. Number two, stay engaged on all things social media. Sign up for the e-newsletter and subscribe to my newly, (laughs) finally, updated YouTube channel where this episode will be live. And let's be honest, feel free to make fun of my facial expressions. All right, let's get started. All right, I'm so excited to finally have my, I would like to say new friend, Lisa, on the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. And I want to start with saying that I did a lot of friendly stalking to the friend, to the people at Viasite who were kind enough to respond to my LinkedIn stalking and emails, all of them saying, I'm sure there was like a scripted one at some point, you need to contact X, Y, and Z, and you were one of those people. So Lisa, I want to thank you for joining the show. And unless you have been under a type one diabetes rock, Lisa is the writer and director of the human trial that came out. When did it come out? Uh, June, just this past June, we did a theatrical release. And so we're recording in late September. So you can see the amount of stalking that's had to go down and watching the film 72 times. um, There's so many hard hitting questions, but I want to start with getting to know Lisa a little bit better and having you know her a little bit better. So let's start with your diagnosis story. Yes. The diagnosis story that we all have. And it's one of those moments. It's like, you know, when JFK was shot, my mother <laughs> remembers that. Where were you when it happened? Right. Or dare I say, no, I won't, I won't get political, but <laughs> my diabetes story started on November 1st, 1991. I was studying at the university of Edinburgh in Scotland. Oh. I was doing a third year abroad from the university of Toronto. And I had no idea what was going on. I had no diabetes in my family. There were autoimmune disorders on my mother's side, but I I had never been exposed to diabetes. So when I got the telltale symptoms, I had no idea what was going on. In my journal, I wrote, oh, I feel like I have a bad flu, but yet I don't have a fever. And kind of moving for me to read it because I was so clueless. But I got diagnosed. I was there by myself. But, you know, I lived in a student house and made friends pretty fast. And I went to the Edinburgh Royal Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh, Scotland. Oh, wow. Where they basically did a blood test and they came back. It was 26 millimoles, which is, you guys, you know, it's times 18 for us in America. And milligrams for deciliter. And I got this card. The nurse presented me a card at the clinic, pink card that said, had diabetic on the top. I was like, what, what are you talking about? What does that mean? Oh, and I got my first insulin shot. 
And I was on my own. I never was hospitalized. And so they did they didn't even uh, this is a question, honestly. Did they determine did they tell you it was type one diabetes or did they just say diabetes is a blank statement? They said type one diabetes. Okay. I should say that. I, I was an athlete. I say past tense, <laughs> but I was certainly a runner and um, I was in good shape, but you know, I had the telltale signs. I, I they tested my blood sugar. They, they knew it. That's okay. I can't imagine being diagnosed in another country because, and this is a question that I ask every guest. I have asked every guest over the past couple of years, and this leads right into it. Do you feel like you received proper education upon your diagnosis and have you continued to receive updated information as you have grown with this type one? That's a really good question. Do I feel like I had the proper support when I was diagnosed? No, no, I don't. I was on my own. That was on my own volition. You know, I was studying abroad, but I literally got my diagnosis and was sent home on my bike to my student house to have lunch and then come back and get my part two of my education. I'm not kidding. And in the morning before they dispatched me home, I watched a video on hypos and how Mm. they could kill you. Mm. And I was like, what is going on? I am like a, not feeling well, you know, B way in over my head. Yeah. B never heard of this disease before. And I don't want to, you know, be speak ill of the University of Edinburgh and the Royal Infirmary because they were very kind. But I think it was, you know, in the dark ages, right? It was 1991. It's going to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you got this. You're smart. Here's your insulin. First injection. Make sure you don't, you know, go hypo on the way home on your bicycle. <laughs> like I think about, because I was diagnosed in 1984 and I was, a, I was, a, I just turned eight which tells you my age. Thank you for that. And I was there for almost two weeks and I wasn't in DKA, but the learning experience there at Children's Hospital, looking back, I'm very thankful for that experience, but it was very, it was traumatizing straight up. And so I can't imagine being, yeah, being in your shoes. Granted, you were old enough to maybe kind of understand. So you get, you get, you ride your bike home and you call your parents and what I would assume, how, what was their response? So interesting. I'm, I'm very close to them. My dad lives in Southern Cal and my mom at that point lived in Ottawa. So I'm Canadian American. Mm-hmm. And I say this, I preface my answer with that because you'll see the reflection of the healthcare systems and what informed it. So my father was like the American, right? Mm-hmm. said, get a second opinion right away. This can't be right. <laughs> what is it? Get a second opinion. Okay. Well, I didn't need to do that because a blood test doesn't lie. And then my mother was like, wait a second, how is that possible? We don't have diabetes in the family. Right. Oh, it's going to be fine. Don't worry yeah. about it. Right. That's the Canadian and the stoic and like, yeah. don't milk the healthcare system unless you really need to. Uh, she feels kind of badly about it because we were just all so ignorant. Yeah. Wow. I was, I was 21. I just want to say the flip side of having that sort of education, you know, hard knocks education that I had. It made me incredibly independent and very independent. I, you know, six months later, I traveled on my own through Eastern Europe, right? So, and, you know, I didn't really know the, how debilitating or how scary it could be because I simply wasn't told. I did a lot of research, but. So you didn't get a death sentence. I mean, it was like, here's what you need to do and move along. Essentially. But my doctor did say, I said, oh my gosh, what is diabetes? And he said, well, it's the leading cause of amputation in Britain. Yeah. Which I'm sure it still is. But again, like mm. being groggy and practically in DKA, being told this 
So it was, you know, it was, yeah, on the one hand, just brutal. On the, on the other hand, here it is. It's in your power. Oh, that's, and that's well said. And I only bring that up because um, as I look back on my diagnosis at age eight, and one of the reasons why I created the Diabetes Daily Grind was because I wasn't supposed to live 20 years, you know? So when I hit the 20 year, it wasn't a diversary at that point, but I was like, holy shit, I've made it this far. What's next? I mean, I've got my eyes, my toes, you know, I've got everything. So I'm not dead, but I mean, what do I do next? I never really thought about life long-term because I didn't think I'd make it there. So interesting you say that because a lot of people with type 1 diabetes didn't live a long time. So there is a lot of data on what it's like to live with type 1 for 60 years. And that those are the lucky ones, right? Those are the, the, the really... The patients who are adherent have good genes outside of the type one <laughs> genetic defect, which might be a big one, and they're able to afford good medication. But yeah, I, I can't imagine that you were told that at your diagnosis. And, and I, I think about how that might have impacted you. And did you think that each year, like, were you counting down the clock to year 20? I don't think so. I just, I think I was lost there for a bit. Because I didn't know what the next, was I going to have a career? You know, it's post-college, blah, blah, blah. That's a great question. I love that you're interviewing me. (laughs) No, I really didn't recognize that until I started talking to other people living with type one. But that wasn't until my late thirties that that conversation was actually being had. And then I look at my friends who do not live with type one diabetes and the career, the choices they've made having a family or doing whatever. I was always kind of like a wild card because I was told not to have children. I really didn't think I would have my eyesight. So I was limited on what I could study in school because I received a, whatever, a grant. So it was just like, eh, I mean, you know, 38 years later, as in with being diagnosed from the disease, I've broken all of those barriers and things like that. And so sharing these stories is what I hope to give other people hope that you, you might not fall into those doom and gloom stories. Granted, there are those people, and I want to talk about that, especially with the human trial, because there were so many things that I could see your facial expressions at times whenever someone was reporting back about their life with diabetes. And there's, I don't know, there's not the correct term, but survivor guilt or not having complications. But I want to, I want to backtrack a little bit because that's way too deep just yet. One of the reasons that I really loved that I love the film is because you brought into light something that a lot of people that have diabetes don't fully understand. And the medical teams maybe need to hear more often. And as someone who's participated in a number of clinical trials, the hard hitting mental health components to what this looks like is insane. And so I'm going to quote, correct me if I'm wrong. One of the things that came right off the bat in the human trial, it says there are two worlds in a clinical trial, one patients who are putting their lives on the line and two researchers who want to transform patient hope into reality. The two worlds create a dynamic universe, yet they are not allowed to meet. Straddling the firewall between the patient and the researchers to ensure the study remains objective. The film, hands down, in my opinion, bridges that gap. And good God, both parties need to hear what it goes into a clinical trial to get it to the market. So I want to start with, again, friendly stalking on my part and Viasite could not chat with me about it. How did you break that door down? I mean, you got access to stuff that people do not get access to. So much to say, and I, and I love your observations, but let's talk about the access question. So that took me a year to get access. One year of like me being a dog with a chew toy, <laughs> calling Mike Scott, you know, head of engineering 
and saying, hey, and fellow Canadian, hey, Mike, so what does Paul think? Paul Lakin, who was the CEO of Eyesight at the time. So what does he think about us coming and filming? And Mike would be like, oh God, yeah, well, we talked about it. It's on the agenda for the next meeting, but nothing really sort of happened. And finally, I just said to Mike, I was like, listen, what is really happening? And Paul, and he said, he reported back that Paul was like, oh my God, is that filmmakers still calling about getting <laughs> access? And you know what the tipping point was, was we had one of my advisors, Robert Oranger, Robert and Marla Oranger, who are exec producers on the film and amazing people. And just, they came up with Vaccini, mm. the, uh, the hypo treatment. Nonetheless, Robert understands the entrepreneurial space very well. And he mm. and I got on the call with Paul Lakend and Robert explained Listen to his concerns. And Robert explained that, listen, this is your legacy. Mm. We have people in labs who toil forever in obscurity. They're moving the needle on research, but they're never acknowledged as such until they're published in the New England Journal of Medicine until ah. they win the Nobel Prize. So he helped to frame it in such a way that I don't think Paul could say no. So that took a year and obviously I had conversations and we had a, a you know, an NDA sign, non-disclosure. Oh, yeah. And we had a, also an exclusivity agreement where we were the ones that would tell this, that are telling the story, pardon me, but we were the ones telling the story, but that Viasite would be able to verify the science and how we portrayed it in the film. Did they ask for, yeah. did they ask to see the film prior to its release? Absolutely. And it's only fair that we did that because a documentary filmmaker relationship with the subject is one of trust. Absolutely. And I did not want to betray that trust, nor did I want to put something out that was factually incorrect. There's too much at stake with this trial. There's too much at stake with diabetes awareness to get it wrong. Even if, even if the stakes weren't as high, I always show the film to the subjects before the screening, before a public screening because a lot of it's very intimate material that they, that they will forget that I recorded. Yeah. So I, I want them to feel comfortable enough for me to show it to the wide world. And so far I haven't had anyone say, don't show that. Okay. Let me, okay. So one of my kajillion questions is how did you pick at the time of the trial? And when you started recording, there were 11 total participants and you had access to two. Did you choose those in particular or were those the only people that signed up for it? What really dictated where we found our participants was what clinical trial site gave us access. Okay. So at that point, they had UC San Diego, University of Alberta in Edmonton, Mm -hmm. and University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. I believe it was just those three trial sites. Yes. And so we didn't get access to UC San Diego. University of Alberta was going to be challenging for us to keep up with the story. Yeah. So sorry. You're so popular, understandably. No, I'm not. <laughs> you know what? I hope you edit this out, but it is honestly, let me just do, do what this. you need to. No I, worries. I don't want to turn it off because I'm on a closed loop, right? I'm yeah. on a loop. So if I turn it off, this isn't good. This is the joy of, of life with diabetes, right? Anyway, I'm going to, you know what? This is hilarious. I am going to do this. I just threw it in my garbage can. Yay. We are keeping this as a part of the podcast. This is real life diabetes right here. Shit. <laughs> okay. Going back. So you had access the university of Minnesota was the best option. Absolutely. And, and regarding the casting of the patients, we had no choice. They were patient one and patient two. 
Oh, we wow. had no say. So we just won the jackpot when yeah. we found or met Marn and Greg. They had no idea what it was going to be like or what they were going to be like. Right. And both did such an incredible job of being real and raw about what was going on. Greg, bless his little heart. That's not fair. Bless his heart is right. But how he articulated his struggles throughout. And there was one part in particular where he said, when I become silent, the voices get louder in my head. I was like, good God, you're suffering in silence. I mean, that's what many of us experience. And I know Greg is cool with me saying this. I am really impressed that he's alive today. Yeah. You know, he's 50 years old and he grew up without much money, without medical resources, without family support. You know, if I were to say on the wrong side of the tracks, which sounds cliche, but he didn't have the support system that so many lucky ones like us have. And so I was one of the first type one people he met. Isn't that a trip? For over 30 years. And the only other person he knew who had it was his father who was in denial and he went blind and he had a very bad hypo Yeah, where he went on. I, I think I can say this. He went unconscious and wasn't found for three days. Yeah. So that was Greg's model. Well, and Greg touches on that and you do a great job of bringing out that conversation when he brings out his father's um, ashes. Yeah. That was his, that was his model. And he just kind of, I guess, my words, not his, that's what life was going to be like. That's, you know, his reality. And I will say that he does touch on the fact that he's of Mexican descent. And one of the things that I really want to bring out in the podcast is, and especially with clinical trials, because we need diversity. And do you feel like, in your opinion, the original 11, there was diversity within the patients or did you get access to the other nine? Yeah, we actually did get access to the other patients and we did film with Carrie Arnett, patient three. But when we were in the edit room, we just didn't have enough space in the film to include. But I'm still, we're all very close. You know, Carrie, Greg and Maren were on a text thread, we talk. But you have to remember too that they're not, when the researchers were doing this trial, they're not implanting nine patients at once. Right. They're doing it at different times so they can learn incrementally yeah. and work on it. Yeah. So maybe there is a parallel patient in Vancouver or yeah. in Edmonton, but in that particular clinical trial site, it was quite linear how they did it until it picked up speed and then they would do three at a time. Therefore, patient one and two were the only ones who were being implanted when I was getting ready to film patients. Do you know how many patients to date have gone through the trial or are going through the trial? And let me bring this up because towards the end, you say that nine, I mean, there were nine patients that they were showing they were producing insulin. If you can't speak to it, I understand that because it's... Oh, no, I can totally speak to it because it's public knowledge. So no problem there. It depends on which clinical trial you're talking about. You know, I don't want to get bogged down in the wonkiness of science here, but there were different iterations. So the one we followed was called PEC Direct, meaning there wasn't, the encapsulation was quite porous. So there was more exposure for the cells to the human body. And that's why the people in our film and the people in the PEC Direct trial have to take immunosuppression drugs. Right. There was, so... How many people are they up to now? I don't know, maybe 30, but it's, it's been odd because the pandemic happened. So they had to put, they had to put everything on hold for two years. Yeah. Not to mention, I mean, they're starting a new trial or they, I I don't know if they 
actually infected someone with this yet, PetQT, which is the most exciting version of this trial from Viasite, where they partnered with CRISPR to gene edit the stem cell line. So it's like a stealth bomber. So it won't get recognized by your body's immune system, which means you don't have to take anti-rejection drugs. drugs. Which is so incredible. That is... There is no doubt about that. And I'm, I'm going to bring up because there are so many questions that thankfully from people that chimed in when I posted this on social media. And let me just find one because I think we touch on that. Before, while I'm looking that up, and if you're watching this on the YouTube channel, yes, I have two screens going on and I have notes. I'm going to be reading. This is not scripted, but I do need some help because my memory is shot. I do like the fact that you brought up because that was going to be one of my major questions that Viasite partnered with CRISPR. And if you're not familiar with either one of those companies, which you should be, I want to bring up with a partnership like that, we're, are we seeing more forward progress in a, in a timely fashion? I know that's not, I mean, that's a weird question, but yeah. No, it's not a weird question. I, I, I know what you're getting at. I think with the partnership with CRISPR, this is an amazing thing. This is fantastic. And I think the CRISPR people believe that type one diabetes is an area where they can affect massive change. Right. Because CRISPR, I think, joined forces with Viasite, I don't know, maybe three years ago, maybe two years ago. I kind of lose track of time. But I think what your question is, when there's a merger or acquisition or partnership, does that kill the competition and and put the kibosh on, on where we're at? Or does it actually increase and accelerate the cure research? I think that the example I would use and it's very timely. Vertex is acquiring Viasite. Yeah. I believe for 320 million cash. Again, fact check that. But, you know, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, I, has not yet approved the acquisition of Viasite because, to your question, the FTC's job is to make sure that there's no monopoly on this type oh. of research, so the competition still exists. It's a very good question. So, I wanted to write an op ed is capitalism? good for cures. Yeah. Because that's what it comes down to. I think in the case of Vertex acquiring Biocyte, this is awesome news. Okay. So Vertex bought, I'm getting into it, but this is a diabetes audience. (laughs) Vertex bought Semitherapeutics, which was Doug Melton's technology that he developed at Harvard. Mm. Doug Melton is a pioneer in this field. Yeah. And he has two kids with type, quite famous, and he's making great headway in his research. So Biocyte, so you got Vertex buying Sema, cool. Doug Melton goes to Vertex and heads up the cell division. So he's still there. Yeah, He has so much integrity. There's no way he's going to sit on patents. Absolutely not. That's right. not what he's going to do. He wants a cure. That's his MO. And so with big pharma money, they were able to accelerate the clinical trials and get some excellent results. Now they're acquiring Biocyte and using the best of Biocyte and their patents to get us over the hump faster. When I got the the announcement that this was in the works, this acquisition, I literally jumped up and down and said, now I really believe we're gonna get there in five years. I don't know, that doesn't mean five years shots in arms, or if you will, taking the COVID analogy, but that certainly means that there will be that press announcement. There will be that press release. There will be that press conference that says, hey, 
we found a functional cure. Okay. There are so many things. I mean, like I'm going crazy right now. One of the things that, and I can't find this specific question. So I apologize to anybody who presented this, but when we talk about the roadblock, they were curious as to whether or not there were big pharma would put up a roadblock or if they would invest. You touch on this in the film. And I think your team does a great job of stating, and I hate the term, but it was like big pharma doesn't participate until they see the progress. And it's bittersweet because I'm like, that's kind of bullshit because if you threw money on in the beginning, then we could see a lot more progress. But no, they want to wait to have everybody do the hard work to throw in their two cents. And I, if you can speak to this, do we think big pharma is going to take the cure and is it going to be affordable? Those are three big questions. <laughs> You're yeah, welcome. No, I'm going to parse out the questions. So the first question is, Big pharma, why don't they invest sooner? And as you say, they're risk averse. And they would rather have these little biotech innovators of 50 people go around the world and raise their own money and show that when they've proven efficacy, it's amazing how many people will come knocking at their door. Yeah. But how does the little engine that could, how do they keep that momentum in a clinical trial? How do they keep the money flowing in to get those results that tips? the big pharma people to throw in the millions of dollars they need to bring something to market. And and that's that's a really important question. That's a really important point that you brought up. And in fact, big pharma, in my opinion, should come in sooner. Yeah, I think everybody would say that, yeah. They have the deeper pockets. They have the ability to absorb risk more than I would say this little biotech company that almost turned off their lights. Yeah. At times, I mean, Visite was very honest about that. We have $180 million cash left, one of the scenes in the film. And that might seem like a lot of money to the average viewer, to the average listener, but that's a drop in the bucket. Well, and I want to, I want to say something to that too, because one of my takeaways, which I knew some of this, but not to the extent in which you presented it. And I, it takes 10 to 20 years to develop a new drug. And those new drugs that come out of the market, roughly cost about $3 billion to get to that point. So when we look at all this, take that into consideration when you have little Viasite and they did a fabulous job of showing the struggles of what it's like to raise and to, you know, damn near men shedding tears for the fact that they made all these presentations and everybody's on board, but nobody returns an email or a call. They're like the big farmer. They're waiting to see who else is going to invest. And again, I call bullshit and I say, people with cash, jump in earlier so we can see some forward progress. That's a little bit dicey. But I want to say too, with you traveling with the team to document all of that, you went to Japan, you went to Saudi Arabia. This is a diabetes personal related question. Did you struggle at any point with traveling internationally and being in another country with your type 1 diabetes? Were you worried? Because Saudi Arabia, like I would be, t- I would be nervous. What if something failed or I didn't have enough this or were you concerned at all? I think I was so focused on getting the scenes that I kind of put the type one diabetes stuff on the shelf. I mean, I'm always packed, right? I have my diabetes suitcase and my kids (laughs) and inevitably I'll forget something super important because I'm so neurotic, but certainly I pack for disaster. Being in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia brought in a whole nother dimension of being a woman in a very unfriendly place to women. Oh, I witnessed that on what you, yeah. yep. It's hot. Had to wear my black abaya head to toe. You had to sit upstairs Uh, where the men were downstairs. I wasn't allowed in restaurants. 
you know, oh, wow. a family restaurant. So my crew would go in and get a great shawarma. And I was like sitting out there in the car. It was very interesting on so many levels. And, and, you know, we can go somewhere else with that on in another conversation. But I think in terms of the diabetes, I, I happen to also be filming, you know, this conference about stem cell research that could be a cure for diabetes. So I was surrounded by a ton of endos. So yeah. I figured that if everything was to go south, I had a I had great access to get an Omnipod. Well, that's good. And I do want to touch on the fact that throughout the film, you were using Omnipod and Dexcom, correct? And yeah. you talked about the closed loop earlier. What, what, what's your system currently? Funny you should ask. So my system right now is Loop, the hack. Old school, old school what hack? Old like Loop with the Riley link. Oh yeah. Yeah, do that. However, I just spent an hour on the phone with my insurance company this morning because I was <laughs> supposed to get the uh, Omnipod 5 mm-hmm. and it's just taking forever. So I just need my startup kit. I have my Dash Pods. I have my Dexcom G6. I'm ready to rock and roll, but I'm missing my startup kit. So I spent an hour on the phone this morning saying, <laughs> I was supposed I, to this two months ago. Oh, we can talk about insurance. That's a whole other podcast. And I'm dealing with it myself right now, thinking about getting my first insulin pump of my life, which is crazy in itself. Okay. So we've covered the roadblocks. I'm looking through my list of questions and the roadblock question about big farmers is from Cheryl J from Washington state. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for presenting that question. My friend, Lorna from Scotland, who is a part of my real life diabetes happy hour. She's amazing. And she just visited Oklahoma and whatever. She had a couple of questions. Where does Lisa see it going in the future? Are there plans to adapt it as the trials and the film did not work? And you kind of touched on that at the end of the the movie They use, I'll let you speak to that. I think she's asking, is Viasite changing things up with the results that they found? Absolutely. And they do that with every patient that is not, you know, in parallel, if you will. But no, no, they, they're constantly tweaking because that's what a clinical trial does. Right. So I think it's really interesting what Lorna brought up, which is, you know, it didn't work. Yes, it didn't work. But is that a failure? The, the definition of failure in science is much different yeah. than what failure is to us as the general public. And in fact, researchers will, researchers will say there's no such thing as failure because we learn from every mistake and that moves it forward. You just cited yeah. that it takes 10 to 20 years to get you know a breakthrough drug or, or device. Well, why? Because you have to keep learning. Yeah. You, have to, you, you have to test in, in animals and in humans. There's a process, there's a scientific method. And so, yes, would I understand why Lorna would say it didn't work? Because it didn't work. It didn't produce insulin for Greg and Marin. But Greg and Marin were instrumental in getting to the next patient a better iteration of that product, you know, tweaking it with the proper devices. In terms of where's Viasite right now in working on a better device? Well, I think. It's Vertex. It's ver- it's the it's the acquisition. Yeah. It's it's not a merger, but it's basically Viasite being absorbed into Vertex. Everybody, Google Vertex. I agree, one hundred percent. There is some amazing stuff going on. Three patients off insulin completely. It was on the cover of the New York Times at Thanksgiving. Yeah. And, and listen, I'm a cynical journalist. A lot of people, I, I feel like one of those pin cushions because I, I, I upset people when I say it's going to be in five years, especially the people who've had diabetes forever. And they're like, how, how can you say that? You know, and you're giving- because we've heard it for years. I mean, like I was given that yes. from, the, I mean, and that's 38 years ago. Like, and I, that was one of my questions and I appreciate it. And you really approached this with one of the people from Biosite and you're like, 
why, why do you feel guilty about promising a cure in five years? And he damn near got emotional with the fact that I know there is a cure within five years. You know, he, he, he was so like, do we want to put a timestamp on that? Or should we just say it's in the very near future? Put a timestamp on it. I'm so tired of not being able to do that. Every okay. time I tried to talk to the, the researchers and, and, and with reason, they shied away from giving a, a time. A day. But at the same time, they had to constantly raise money. So they had to tell the VC yep. investors they had to project when that time frame. Because there has to be a, an outline, I mean, a, a goal, an outcome. Um, there has to be a return on investment Yeah, if you're doing it that way, right? So yeah, I say five years and... Of course, I want to be proven. I want to be proven right. But if you talk to head researchers, like you interview Dr. Camilla Ricordi, I highly suggest that Diabetes yeah. Research Institute, amazing guy. He was just at the EASD. I probably Doug Melton was there too. I'm not sure. You know, the EASD, it was yeah. in Stockholm. You know? Yeah. And all the big thinkers in the field seemingly were there. And the results that are coming out of the Vertex Lab and the Biosite Lab, it's very encouraging. And, and I, I, I don't want to also, it's not just those companies, okay? So yeah. there's also Semeth, um, excuse me, Cernova mm-hmm. in London, Ontario. Evidently, there's a company in Israel. I honestly can't get, Nova Nordisk has now put their eggs in this basket. Yeah. Everyone is jumping on this bandwagon of programming a stem cell line to be islet cells. Everyone is jumping on this bandwagon because they know that it works. It's a matter of protecting these cells from being rejected. Once you do that, you got your home run. Well, and here's my, this is a scientific question, maybe not one that you can answer, but something I want to bring up is the fact that Marin, her body rejected, has rejected everything. So when we have a cure, will that work for her? I love your observation. She's on, she's still on anti-rejection drugs, by the way, mm. because her body has such an immune response, but she handles them very well. It's super interesting. And she's a, she's a, yeah, she's a warrior to say the least. And, and like I said, I've participated in a few clinical trials and I'll never forget. And it was week 15 when she had a nervous breakdown and all, when she just was, and no judgment whatsoever, she was crying about what she was going through and she didn't think she could do it anymore. I was on an insulin trial and I'll never forget visiting my parents and plopping down on the couch and just started bawling. And they're like, what the hell is going on here? And I was like, I just can't do this anymore. Like I am so stressed out about X, Y, you know, it's my, it's affected my diabetes and I'm like, okay, so quit. I felt like a failure to the research community and I had written a post about it years ago and the research team contacted me because it was well after the fact and said, it was because of your horrible data, we changed the formula. And it's like, I only know that because I was a part of the trial. Hallelujah. You are preaching to the choir here. (laughs) And I, this is one of the things that is coming out of the film, which I'm really excited about, which is how do you improve the experience of a clinical trial participant, especially in experimental trials like this, especially for someone who has such a uh, demanding chronic disease like type one diabetes. The patients were heroes really. And they also had a lot of anxiety and stress because they could look at their Dexcom and get that feedback right away. They were getting the immediate feedback about, oh, are the cells working? Yeah. And so it kind of messed with their mind. And it was a really unique situation that required some sort of therapist for them. 
some sort of psychologist. And, you know, the PI, the principal investigator, Dr. Melinda Bellin was excellent. And Kathy Nealon, the trial coordinator was great. They would answer texts, you know, on weekends, but they needed more. They needed more. I became a sounding board for them. And I just kept thinking, you know, what happens if I wasn't here? They were also a sounding board for each other, Greg and Martin and and Carrie. And if they didn't have each other, they would have bailed on the trial. So Hmm. how do we take that example and improve it for people like yourself too? Yeah. I'm so glad that the, the research team reached out to you and said you weren't a failure, but everybody who gets kicked out of a trial, kicked out, feels like they failed. And that's yeah. not right. I wish that, God bless Viasite, but this again is the MO of this type of research. I do wish that Viasite had called them and said, yeah. this is what we learned from you. And they wanted to meet, the, the senior team wanted to meet the patients, but it's, it's not in the budget. It's mm-hmm. not in the, it's not in the protocol. Would it have jeopardized their? No, okay. not at that point because it hadn't worked. So there didn't need to be a firewall. Well, you know, I'm going to be a total jerk right now, but it, let me say this. Viasite should have adjusted their budget. Let's not have a luncheon. Let's not travel. Let's whatever. And bring those people in so you can have a face-to-face with them because they risk their life for your research. They would agree as well. And right now I'm happy to say that there are a bunch of really smart people in this field of clinical research who want to make it better. Oh, that's great. But it's new. It's new. It's nascent. It's just happening. And it's really, this this is what makes me pleased about the film is that I do think this will have a tangible difference. And I talked to Greg and Marn about it. And I, and I said to them, what would you, what, what, what did you want done differently? How could your experience have been better? And they basically, Marn was like, A, B, C, D, E. I would expect nothing less from her. And that's a compliment. I want to touch on this just because I'm going to read you something, a comment, and it's not a question, but there are a couple of questions that come from from this statement. So this is Carrie who lives here in Oklahoma. It was intriguing to see the emotional and physical impact the people participating in the trial went through. I kept thinking to myself how strong they are to completely give control over their life, their only life they know for a chance of it working. I feel like most people do not understand how much of a mind game this disease is. So one of the questions that I have is, what have you and your team done to check in with the participants post-filming? And it's clear that you are in regular communication yeah. I mean, I text them every other day. That's great. When I go through a bad eye appointment, yeah, you know, I have uh, a beginning of retinopathy. I think we all do. I've had it 32 years, but who do I text first? I text them. I text Carrie patient three. I text Marin patient one or Greg patient two and Marin patient one. And they help me a lot. And, you know, I had an episode with DKA and who did I call? I called Greg because yeah. he, he has lots of experience in that. I was like, Greg, my husband called and guy called and said, should she go to the hospital? Greg said, yeah, take her now. So I am close with them. And in fact, we're doing screenings in Canada. We're doing some premieres there. Yes. And we are flying them out because everybody wants to hear from them. <laughs> I love that so much. Oh my gosh. I need to, I'll start saving my pennies. I'll join you all there. Where can people find out information about screenings in Canada? And we've got a couple of other announcements and I have a shit ton of other questions still, but let's, let's go ahead and jump into that. So we've got a TVOD announcement for November 11th. Yes. So what is, yeah, let's TV talk about that. TV, television on demand. So if you're spending $1.99 for <laughs> iTunes or Google Play or Amazon, that is a that's a TVOD. Okay. Okay. So, so there's gonna be a TVOD release on November 11th, which is a Friday. 
just to tee up the November 14th Diabetes Global Diabetes Day. So that's cool. And then we're doing a ton of educational impact screenings. There's been a lot of interest in that. So you can go to our website and you can go to host a screening tab and our impact producers will set you up and, you know, there's a small licensing fee, but we waive it a lot. We want people to see this film, yeah. we want people to talk about it. We want people to feel like their story is being told. As you pointed out, it's pretty emotional. And then if you go to the watch page on our website, you'll see our theatrical release in the U.S. and Canada. And you can see where we pop up at different festivals, film festivals. But the big releases are TVOD and broadcast release down the road. And I want to say too, one of the things that I love how this is a global, I mean, this is literally affecting the global diabetes community. Uh, My past podcast guest, Nupur Lalvani, she lives in Pune, India, who is the founder of the Blue Circle Diabetes Research. Blue Circle Diabetes Foundation. She has hosted a screening and she has the largest patient-led diabetes app in India. So she is really helping to get that out there. And so I had asked her team as well, like, are there any questions? And I feel confident that the two of you will connect and I'm happy to connect with you. She's amazing and is such an advocate. And I love that she's pushing this film because everyone needs to see it. And I will say, and this is a question slash comment is, as somebody who has given a kajillion insulin injections in my life, having blood drawn or getting an IV is like, you got to talk me off the ledge. And so seeing so many needles during this documentary was just like, oh my God, like I had to cover my eyes. I was like, ah, whatever. Did, oh, that's it, really funny. Did, I, I would, I'm surprised that as a fellow type one, you would have that reaction because I figured that we're all so involved in our daily care that you can't be afraid of needles or blood, but I guess that's not the case, but I think it's very, you know, it, it's yeah. Surprising. But Maureen looked away a lot of the times whenever they would give an IV and I was just like, girl, I know what you're, I know what you're going through right now. <laughs> a, a lot of our, you know, people, you know, I guess with diabetes too, they had to look away during those surgeries. So, so many things and the scars and whatever. Is there any, I, I mean, I'm look, going through my list of questions again. And I want to say to the the people listening, I'm not a medical professional. I'm just asking questions and we're not, I'm not giving any medical advice. I'm just so curious about how all these things evolve as being a participant and watching these stories. I really want to touch on and, and maybe with Lisa, as someone, if you don't have diabetes, you're still going to be impacted by this movie because you're going to see the struggles that someone has to go through, but because you live with a disease and there's, I don't know the correct term. I can only say this for cancer survivors. There is guilt. If you are not, if you survive and somebody in your family does not survival guilt. So in recording this, was it a struggle at any point? Because Greg in particular, just really struggling with some of his complications. And he looked at you dead in the face and you said, I'm sorry. And he was like, no, I'm sorry. (sighs) Like I could cry right now. Talk a little bit about what impact that had on you and your family during recording all this. You know, as a journalist, I was taught to always be objective. Right. You you honor the subject. It's not about you. But in this case, I was so close to the subject matter. I actually cried quite a lot during filming silently, silent tears. I would see Greg struggle when he was doing the intake and he's sitting on the, on the bed, you know, with his wife, Becky, and he's just like, I really want this to work. 
and I'm listening behind the camera. And I just had the tears rolling down my face because I knew how much he wanted it and how much he had suffered and how much he was about to go through. And so it was really heavy. Yeah. I, in terms of the guilt, I certainly have it. I am fortunate enough. I'm not, you know, wealthy, but I have enough resources to have good insurance. Yeah. I have an amazing medical team. I mean, amazing. I have 10 doctors. Like it's crazy. Foot doctor, everything. I have a lot to be thankful for. And so when I see people struggle, which we as professional diabetics, you know, we don't often see that world and we need to burst our bubbles because behind all of these terrible statistics are people like Greg and they deserve our empathy, our sympathy and our generosity. And this is why I do chafe against people when they maybe respond to the film and they say, well, I only showed the doom and gloom bit. I only showed how rough Mm -hmm. it was. Well, you know what I say to that? I say, you're lucky. If if you're climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and you're sponsored by Dexcom, you're an anomaly. You're an exception. And I want you to shake your head, get your head out of the clouds, literally on the top of that mountaintop. Think about the others who aren't as lucky. And think about the people who die from this disease all over the world. I really feel so passionately about this. Yeah. I, I think, you know, we send these ambivalent messages out there. If you have diabetes, it's invisible. So we can say, Hey, I got this. I can do this. I got this job. I had this child. I had two kids. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I know it takes a lot of work and a lot of focus and a lot of persistence and kudos to whomever has done that, but not everybody even has the chance to do that. And that we really, we need to focus on all of us, but let's not forget those who don't have it as lucky as we do. That's a fact. And something I want to say to that, this is kind of off subject, but not And one of the questions that was presented to me was, you know, with the COVID vaccine being available for free to everyone, should they choose to take it when the cure is available, do we think it will, A, do we see diabetes as a pandemic? That's question number one. Number two, do we think that that vaccine, for lack of a better term, it will be available to everybody? insightful, really insightful questions. Yes. Diabetes is a pandemic. I call it the other pandemic that needs to be taken seriously. I think about this a lot, actually. Like when I was on the phone with my insurance company this morning, I was just like, oh my God, I want to say this in a Q and a Larry Kramer out there. Does anyone know Larry Kramer? Larry Kramer was one of the big AIDS activists mm-hmm. who Fauci became very, Anthony Fauci became very friendly with. This was in the height of the AIDS crisis in the mid eighties when people were just dying from it. No one was taking it seriously, especially not the government. And Larry Kramer, this AIDS activist was in this panel discussion and he looked at everybody and he said, this is a fucking plague. Yeah. I about that. And I'm like, damn it. I'm going to say that this is a fucking yes. And why aren't we taking it seriously? Why? Well, there's many thoughts on that. But last year, 6.7 million people died from diabetes. 2021. Let's just absorb that. That's the population of Utah and Connecticut together. 6.7 million people. We don't want to think about those numbers because this is such a mind, F-U-C-K, to live with this disease. And it's like, are you going to mire yourself in the trenches of despair and 
terrible stats, or are you going to embrace the fact that we have the technology to live a better life than those before us? That's, a, that's yeah, well and said. I, and at the end of the day, I respect everybody who lives with this disease. Nobody gets it wrong and nobody gets it right. No judgment. Like, let's suspend the judgments. And one of the many reasons why I like your film and your energy is because, and why I started the podcast is everybody has a story. Your story may be very different from mine, but at the end of the day, I want to walk arm in arm with you. I want to help you whenever you need help. And if it were not for the diabetes community, online community, if you found your people, I mean, I think we're, I know we're saving lives because if for nothing else, the mental health health component, connecting with people who get it. And sometimes you need to hear somebody else's story. So I cannot tell you how excited I am to finally sit across from you virtually and hope to meet you in person. Is there anything else? I mean, I'm staring at all my questions. There's so much more. Maybe we'll have a follow-up episode after, you know, maybe in November or December, but um, is there anything else you want to share to the Real Life Diabetes podcast listeners as to what's in the future for you and your team? People ask me if there's going to be a sequel. And there's a part of me that says, I don't want a sequel. I just want the cure. And so it'll be an epilogue. I want to spend another 10 years doing this. Probably not. Um, (laughs) But I have been called by people in the research community to do a sequel and to follow them. That's how confident a lot of these researchers are about this functional cure. I don't know what's next. I feel very impassioned by not only telling good stories, but affecting change. That's why I got into film documentaries. And I think that the potential with this film to raise awareness, we all know about raising awareness, but to really change legislation. This is kind of the last thought I want to leave with your listeners for now is that the government, okay? The government's trying to make a difference. And I'll tell you how. ARPA-H is this uh, division of the NIH that was just formed by the Biden administration. In fact, they just appointed a woman from the biotech world to head it up. What up? Yay. (laughs) I agree. So what is this? What is the mandate of this ARPA-H? It is to accelerate cure research, Mm. specifically diabetes and Alzheimer's. Those are the ones that are referenced. Now, Biden will reference cancer because he has a personal connection to that. But it is to give money earlier and more to early science, basic science, as well as promising clinical trials like the one we saw at Biocite. ARPA age. We should be excited. Let's support it. Cures Act 2.0. Cures Act 2.0, the Diabetes Caucus in the House of Representatives, run by a bipartisan two leaders who are bipartisan. One's a Republican, Tom Reed, and the other is Diane DeGette, who's a Democrat, and she has a type one child. This is cool. So Diabetes Caucus, Diane DeGette, they just ta- they just introduced this new reboot of the Cures Act called Cures Act 2.0 at last November. Again, it's about accelerating cure research. And obviously diabetes is paramount on people's minds. So get out there, call your Congress, members of Congress, you know. And uh, beyond, you guys partner with Beyond Type 1. I only bring this up because... I believe that they have, and there are a number of other organizations, which I'll be happy to put in the show notes, letters, templates, essentially, that you can write or call. There are numbers, there's all kinds of things to get involved when it comes to the caucus and how we get to have a voice in what's going on. We are the ones who have a voice. And and if it wasn't for our voices and, you know, JDRF lobbying as well as they do, we wouldn't be at this junction. So we use our voices and we are loud. 
and that's important. <laughs> so yes, yeah, if you want to, if you want to get involved, you can go to Beyond Type One. I think we have a link. We have a link on our website to Beyond Type One's Get Involved page. I think it's a backslash it's here. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they've been an amazing support through the years. I, I'm going to just do a tribute to Daham Share, who yeah. ended up Beyond Type One and had an untimely passing last December. Yeah. But he was an early champion of the film in 2015, when not a lot of people saw the vision that I had. He did. So Beyond Type One's been a, been a big supporter to us. And I want to say one last thing is that when I was watching, because I don't live in, a, I live in Oklahoma, let's not kid ourselves, we do have the film industry here, but there wasn't a screening and maybe I will, not maybe, I'll put together a screening for one of our really cool theaters here in town, but watching people like Scott Johnson and Kelly J. Rose and everybody going to the screenings. So it was nice to have such a, everybody needs to see it. B, it doesn't matter if you're in the diabetes advocacy space, but to have powerhouses like that. Everybody is on the same page. This is a great way for us all to work together to see change in this movie. Like I said in the very beginning, and you really put into the film is you're bridging the gap and it really needs to happen. And so for those of you who bitch about donating to X, don't want to do a walk, just know that your dollars are going to things. It may not be as transparent as we would like. But just know that there are things going on. And I'm hoping with Lisa and other people, uh, we will help get that information out because they might not be able to. So you know what's going on and want to support everyone's actions. So absolutely. I'm here and I I love this interview, Amber. So great and really great to meet you. And I know we'd be fast friends. (laughs) I will see you in Canada. I will see you somewhere else very soon. Thank you, Lisa, so much for taking time and thank your team for being patient with me as we schedule all this. You're amazing. Thanks for all that you do. Well, (laughs) thankfully no tears were shed and I only scratched the surface about the promise of a cure. As someone who's lived with type one diabetes for decades, this film made me sob, like literally an ugly cry while at the same time giving me a glimpse of hope. Stay tuned because I'm confident there will be a follow-up episode. And be sure to check out local screenings and how you can watch it online at thehumantrial.com. As I wrap up this episode, I want to remind you that I'm here for my diapeeps and the medical community. So feel free to contact me on any social media platform or directly at amber at diabetesdailygrind.com. Your continued support and love help keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. Yes, I'm-